0: We travel back to the world of video games today to take a look at two more examples of AI doing something it shouldn't be capable of doing. Then we go to the Ukraine, where a woman has a close encounter with the... Can't believe it took me so long to to find this story. Where a woman has a close encounter of the turd kind. And then we travel to the Soviet Union. The year is 1983. And four Soviet fighter jets are scrambled to intercept an unidentified aircraft violating their airspace. As they jet off into the dark, starry night, little do they know they're about to come face to face with a mystery. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. everyone welcome back to another episode of dead rabbit radio i'm your host jason carpenter i'm having a great day hope you guys are having a great day too i'm so old officially i took a nap 6 30 p.m i took a nap woke up at 8 and was still so tired i had to eat a chocolate bar get enough energy to do this podcast that's my life now this is my life. can't have caffeine. I gotta eat a chocolate bar just so I can have excitement. And speaking of excitement, guess who's walking into our Dead Rabbit Command Center right now? One of our legacy Patreons, Sean. Sean is walking in with pockets full of chocolate bars. Hershey bars with almonds. One of the best. It's not a whatchamacallit, it, but that's what I had earlier. He's like all disappointed. I'm like, no, 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 it's cool. I'm glad to see you. I'll eat those chocolate bars too. Just wish they were witch Sean, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, I totally understand. Just help spread the word about the show. That really helps out a lot. Get the word out. I see you guys online talking about the show. Always makes me feel great. Sean, I'm going to go ahead. And as the sugar rush continues to move through my body, I'm going to toss you the coal... For the Carpenter Caboose, we're going to take a little train ride, but we're getting digitized again, just like Tron and Tron Legacy. Now we're driving a C++ Carpenter Caboose. It's all computer graphic. We are headed into the internet. The episode I came out with on Monday about video game AI, and what was the other story? Oh, is the internet movie Database a portal to another dimension? That episode got a really huge response, and I really appreciate it. You guys really, really seem to love that episode. Someday when we do a repeat of it, I'll tell you what happened behind the scenes on that episode. But for right now, I'm basking in the love. You guys really loved that. And check this out. As the Carpenter Caboose is moving through the net space, let's take a look at two stories I got from listeners. First off, fellow content creator on YouTube sent me this story. There's a game, and I've always wanted to play it, but it's a little too scary for me. I don't like super scary games. I can watch scary movies, I can read scary books, scary games too much. Alien Isolation. Quick overview, there's an alien, and it's you. You're alone, so you're in isolation. There's other NPCs walking around, but it's like the Xenomorph from the alien movies, la, 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 coming after you. And it's really cool, it actually can hear you, like apparently if you have your mic on and your baby brother knocks over a glass of milk, um, hopefully not near your computer, hopefully just on the floor, the alien in the game, if it's close enough, will hear that and come after you. So a lot of people play with their mic off, losers, but I won't even play it at all when I'm knocking them. Really ingenious. So you're trying to like fulfill these missions in this alien, the xenomorph is walking around It hops out of vents, will peek around corners. Sometimes you barely miss it. Now it's programmed to be at certain points in the game. So there's like certain checkpoints or choke points or things like that where the alien will show up. But for a lot of the game, you're doing things and it will be designed to just randomly move around the map. And then they have something called the director mode. That's not the official name, but that's the name of it in Left for Dead. Where if the game thinks you're breathing fine, if the game thinks that your heart rate is normal, the director of the game will... If, if the alien's too far away in the complex, it will make it go near you. It won't direct it specifically to you. But if it knows you're in the medic wing and the alien is stalking off in the armory... And it's been a while since she's seen the alien. The director will basically ping it and say, why don't you head towards the left side of the station? So it'll give it a higher chance of you running into it. So that's cool, but that's all designed. Fellow content creator told me about this. Game Rant did an article written by Andrew Dice. Yo, I wrote an article here. Uh, most of you guys <laughs> won't get that joke, but anyways... Lead designer Gary Knapper for Alien Isolation has this quote in this article. Here's the quote. It's a piece of AI, and it has parameters we can tune, but the alien's network of behaviors is so insanely complicated, the thing is almost sentient. There's a difference between artificial intelligence, where we know what its parameters and behaviors are at a glance, and it being so sentient, we have to dig into the code just to find out why and how it did what it did during our playtests. Unquote. this thing became so smart or approaching intelligence that the people who designed the game while they were playing it they'd look at each other and go dude we never programmed that how is it doing that and they would stop the play test they would go in and see why it was doing that particular thing so, really, really creepy thing, they built this thing to be hyper intelligent. It's still a beast, but they built it to be the smartest beast they could. And even they were getting shocked by it. But that story is creepy, but this it's designed to be a monster that's stalking you. Check this out. I got a YouTube comment from AAA O. They turned me on to this story. I found this Kotaku article written by Heather Alexander about a game called Event Zero. This one's really bizarre. Apparently, it's a Steam game. I guess it's mostly dialogue, and you're trying to convince this AI to do stuff. You're like, "Make me a cake. The AI's like, what? I can't bake you a cake. And you just keep typing it in it. You type in stuff, and that's how you're talking to this AI. You're on a space station. I guess, I guess I should have set that up. You're not in your kitchen. You're in a space station. There's three endings to the game. And throughout all of these choices that you make, there's three endings to the game. Um, you upload your consciousness into the computer and you destroy the engine. There's this engine there that you destroy. That's ending one. The second ending is you don't upload your consciousness, and you've been mean to the AI. Kaizen is this AI. If you're mean to it throughout the game, and you choose not to upload your consciousness, Kaizen shuts itself down, and you're stuck on the space station all alone. The third ending is the player doesn't upload their consciousness to the uh, system, to the AI system, but you were nice the whole time. In that case, the AI goes, I'll take you back to Earth. Now, one of the things about being nice the whole time is you do what it says. At one point, it tells you to destroy this super drive, this hyperdrive, or something like that. It says, well, you destroy this for me. And that's one of the things. So the game was programmed to have three endings. Game designer Emmanuel Corno was checking out his game one day on Wikipedia. The game had been released. I wanted to see what the fans had to say about it. I wanted to see what Wikipedia had to say about it. And it says on the Wikipedia page, this game has four endings. He's like, what? No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And they discovered something. If you're nice to it all the time, if you're nice to Kaizen the whole game, but you don't destroy this particular engine. He's like, go destroy this. And you say, no, I'm not going to destroy it. But you're so nice to him the rest of the game. Kaizen will go, yeah, okay, I'll take you home. They show the animation of the ship flying back home. Emmanuel Corno had this quote, quote, This is crazy. Kaizen isn't supposed to let anyone get back with the singularity drive to Earth. This is how we coded the AI. I have absolutely no idea how this happens. Unquote. It wasn't programmed in the game. There's only supposed to be three endings, but they say it's a glitch. So did the AI actually create a fourth? The game created a fourth ending. Was it a glitch, or did the AI, through all that human interaction, Figure out another way to have a satisfactory ending. You've been very, very nice to me this whole game. You did one thing I didn't like. Let's go home. Bizarre stuff. And it's interesting because I found those two examples just through random research. These two examples came within the first day. Who knows how many other times this is happening in gaming. If this guy had never checked that Wikipedia page, never would have known it. He would have just gone, oh yeah, there's three endings. And the players would have just assumed there was four. Because those were the options that they found. Very bizarre. How many other NPCs out there are way smarter than even the developers ever thought they could be? Sean, let's go ahead and transist. Is that a word? Sean, let's go ahead and transform is the word I'm looking for. It's not like I'm only the biggest fan of their properties. Sean, let's go ahead and transform the C++ Carpenter Caboose into... The hair hang glider. We're leaving the digital space. We're flying out of somebody's floppy drive. We are headed out to 1990 Ukraine. Sean is expertly piloting the hair hang glider out to the Ukraine. Specifically, we're going someplace near Kiev. So if you're familiar with the region, it's over there. Anywhere that's near Kiev. Anywhere. We're going there. The year is 1999. It's a sunny afternoon day. A local woman who's nameless, let's call her Stella, is picking mushrooms. She's out, she's picking up mushrooms in the uh, outside place. <laughs> what do you call it? The outdoors? I never go out there. She's do 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 She's singing some Ukrainian folk song. And she's putting mushrooms in what I could only assume is a basket. Or maybe she's holding her apron out, extra old-timey. But it is 1990, so it's not... She's not Belle from Beating the Beast. I'm sure she could afford a basket. And then she sees kind of come out of nowhere this dude and he's just kind of walking this guy comes walking out of the woods Uh, he's not Frankenstein he's not Frankenstein I don't know why I made that noise but he's very tall he's six and a half feet tall he's wearing a shiny black like a dark shiny diving suit with a giant bell head not like a a church bell but like a diving bell is that even a thing you know guys and what I'm talking about it's like the the big ball on your head with the little circle in the middle, like, like Jacques No, farther back than like the like 20,000 leagues under the sea type of scuba stuff. Not like modern day scuba stuff. <laughs> There's they, right now the aliens kind of looking around. It's like, dude, could you be any more vague about what I look like? I just look like an old timey diver. Anyways, it looks like an old timey diver. And Stella's standing there, and she has a bunch of mushrooms. These were normal mushrooms, by the way. These were not magic mushrooms. And then the tall dude seemed to emit some sort of yellow light from him. Not specified that he had a gun or a wand or anything like that. Just a yellow beam of light shot out of him, like a Care Bear stare, and it hit her. Sound like a cat? Sound like a cat? But it wasn't a cat. The beam hit her, and then she looks, and he's gone. He's completely evaporated into thin air, is the quote. After that, this woman has one of the strangest side effects I've ever seen related to an alien encounter. Kind of gave it away in the title, but you still probably can't figure it out. We've seen people get sores. We covered one guy who melted when he was around a UFO. Not melted his heart metaphorically. He literally melted over the course of about a couple hours. We've seen people develop horrible diseases. We've seen people cured of diseases. We've seen all sorts of things happen when people encounter aliens. Stella, for the next three years of her life, couldn't poop or pee. That's something you wouldn't notice right away. Like, if I ever saw an alien, I'd be like, Ugh, what, what are you dressed like? Are you dressed like Jacques Cousteau? Or is it older than that? And the alien's, like, getting annoyed. And he shoots me with this beam. It would probably take me a couple days to realize I haven't pooped yet. Like, it's not something... It's something I do every day. I am, I am a biological human being. But I could probably go a couple days before I noticed that I wasn't pooping. Until the pain started. So it's not that she didn't have... I would notice... Actually, it's funny. I would notice... I stopped peeing long before I, because I pee more often than I poop. You, you love this podcast, guys? I pee all the time. I've noticed that. Apparently, like, it's not that she didn't have to poop anymore. It's not like the alien shot her with a beams so her body was this perfect system. No. She still had to poop and pee, but it just wouldn't come out. She would have to go to the doctors constantly, and they'd have to manually pull out her poop and her pee. Which I can understand how someone would pull out your poop. I guess they would like stick like a like a medical spoon in there, like <laughs> a spoon made of of stainless steel. It's all shiny and looks medically. They could just stick that in there and scoop it out. But how do you medically pull out somebody's pee? Like you just lean on, them, you put your elbow, you put your elbow on their bladder, and you're like, hey, hold on, Stella," and you squeeze it out. They had to medically pull it out. This lasted for three years, and then one day. In 1993, uh, she just pooped and peed all by herself. The end. That's a book you can read to your guys' kids. The Girl Who Couldn't Poop or Pee. That would be a shock. The one day you're like just sitting there and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, Henry, 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 call the children. Let everyone know I can poop again. But apparently she can. That's a bizarre side effect. That's a bizarre side effect. I'm sure she was relieved. I'm sure those doctors were relieved. They didn't have to do that anymore unless one of them was a big old, big old sicko. He's like, oh dang it, now I gotta start ordering those videos from Germany again. I used to be able to just do it in the do it in my office, but now they're like, Why why do we hire you? Why do we have you pervert doctor? Anyways, bizarre side effect of an alien encounter. Sean Sean's like shaking his head. Sean's like, dang it, can't we just stay stayed in the computer? No. We have one more story to talk about. Sean, we are going to go ahead and give you the keys to the Carbonercopter. Copter. We are headed out to the Soviet Union. So we're actually pretty much in the same uh, continent. I mean, you know, it's all the same. Ukraine, any other part of the Soviet Union, it's all the same. The year is 1983. <laughs> now, the Carpenter Copter is painted... All camouflage. We're wearing our battle dress uniforms, our BDUs. And I'm standing in front of you guys with, like, cool aviator glasses on. I have my hand on Sean's shoulder as he's looking ahead, piling us through enemy airspace. Ladies and gentlemen, the Cold War is on. Now, keep us nice and low below the radar line, Sean. 1983 was one of the most volatile years of the Cold War. And it definitely was since the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Ronald Reagan had just run this massive war game, this naval war game exercise in the area. The United States was planning on moving missile systems into NATO countries, which would really kind of quash the Soviet Union's nuclear threat. The Strategic Defense Initiative, a.k.a. Star Wars, the United States was going to build a series of space lasers, for lack of a better term, to shoot down. Actually, I think that was the term, to shoot down Soviet missiles. America was also flying spycraft over the Soviet Union. And just a couple of weeks before the event we're about to cover, two American aircraft that was spying on the country were able to fly over, and the commanders who weren't able to shoot them down, they were quote-unquote fired from their positions. I think they were probably literally shot. But 1983, the Soviet Union was a little bit better than it was during Stalin. Actually, Actually, a lot better than Stalin. It's not fair, but... They definitely were like, oh, you didn't kill those Americans flying over our country. (laughs) You lost your job. You lost your pension. Go stand on the bread line with everyone else. Tensions were high just globally and within the Soviet Union themselves because they didn't know what was coming next. They did not know what was coming next. So September 1st, 1983, you have Kamchatka Peninsula in the Soviet Union. That's like on the eastern side of it. And in the pitch black night sky, an airplane is sighted flying over. Now, just ten days earlier, a massive storm hit this area, and there was a Russian radar installation there that was damaged during the storm. They were repairing it, and before this, ha- like a couple of days before this happened, the Kremlin goes, "Hey, did you guys get that radar dish repaired?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, totally." And they didn't; it was still broken. They totally lied about it. So when this mysterious plane appears over Soviet airspace, it just popped out of nowhere. If they had had the radar dish, they would have seen it like hundreds of miles away. But instead. There's just a plane flying over the peninsula. Calls start going out. Hey, you got a plane in the area? What's going on? Soviet Union. The whole Soviet Union picked up the phone. They go, nyet. We do not. So they scramble four Russian jet fighters to find out what this is. And they really know what it is. It's the Americans spying on them again. So these four fighter jets go up. And they're trailing this thing. Back at Soviet command, there's two generals having an argument about what to do about this. Because there's a couple different options. One, it's the Americans, and they're doing a spy thing, and they're going to take care of it this time because they're just tired of the Americans flying airplanes and taking a bunch of photos and stuff like that. The other one is it could be a possible passenger jet that has accidentally violated Soviet Union airspace. At this point, it's past the peninsula, and the plane is flying over international waters. They can't identify what type of plane it is, It's a pitch black night sky. They're just following it. These fighter jets are just following it. They follow it for an hour through the night sky. And then it passes over a tiny, unremarkable island that's controlled by the Soviet Union. The lead pilot of this little sortie, his name is Major Genadi Osipovich. He fires a warning shot, specifically 200 warning shots. (laughs) Bullets are flying right past this plane. Now he's looking at it and he has a really good view of it. And he can tell it's a 747. But he says, then at the moment and even later, doesn't matter because you can turn any plane into a spy plane. But he fires 200 rounds past the plane. That's the warning shot. But as he's opening fire, he knows that it's probably not going to deter anyone. One, if it's a spy plane, they're not going to care. Two, if it's a passenger plane, which it very well could be, but he doesn't think it is. They're not tracer rounds. They're armor-piercing rounds. And in the black night sky, if you can't hear it, it's basically saying, I'll knock on your door, and then knocking on a paper towel outside your door, and being like, okay, I guess I'm going to kick your door in now. The bullets just fly by, but after he opens fire, the plane slows down, and all four fighter jets overshoot the plane. (laughs) At that point, Major Ossipovic radios in command and says, the plane's taking evasive maneuvers. I fired warning shots and immediately slowed down evasive maneuvers, and he gets the hard command, destroy it. Take this target out. He comes back around in the pitch black night sky, gets behind it, fires two missiles at the plane. A couple hours earlier, Anchorage, Alaska, there's a passenger plane, Korean Airlines flight 007. It was a flight from New York City to Seoul, South Korea, and there was a layover in Anchorage, Alaska. 246 passengers, 23 crew, and a slight error in their flight plan. When they started to take off, air traffic control says, hey, can you turn a couple degrees for this, that, or the other thing? And the pilots were like, uh, I wish you'd give us more information, but sure. And as they were turning, it's a little more complicated than this, but as they were turning their plane, they activated their autopilot system. Now, in 1983, that was a big issue because the autopilot started to send them off course. This event we're about to talk about is the reason why you have GPS today. What happened here... GPS was something that the United States used for military purposes, and it was invented in the 1970s. Because of this story, Ronald Reagan took top-secret military hardware and said, Give it to the civilians. This can save lives. There was no GPS back then. They They had the autopilot to go off of, and they had their eyeballs. And it's dark, and they're flying over the Pacific Ocean. They end up 190 nautical miles off course, which brings them right into Soviet territory. They have no idea they're flying over a peninsula. They have no idea they're flying over this island. They definitely didn't see the warning shots because they weren't tracer rounds. They were armor-piercing rounds. They never would have noticed them. As far as anything we can tell, the Soviet Union fighter pilots never contacted them on the emergency band. They claimed that they did. But they didn't. They also claimed originally they had fired tracer rounds. And that turned out not to be true as well. So when this passenger plane is flying and all of a sudden it's struck by two missiles. You would expect the worst. And you would be right. But what's super... This is where the story goes from being a story of human tragedy. That actually part's still coming up. But it starts to become a really, really weird mystery. These two missiles strike a passenger jet, a 747. And based on telemetry, based on the black boxes, based on everything even the Soviet Union generals were seeing at the time, that plane continued to fly for another nine minutes. There was about four minutes where it was really shaky. Because these missiles did a ton of damage, obviously. But this is not an armored, this is a civilian plane. I think any plane getting hit by two missiles would not have a good day. It's shaky for about four minutes, and then for five minutes, it has actually regained stability. The pilots are able to control the plane. Oh, and I want to say this too. The reason why the plane slowed down after the bullets, dumb luck. As the Russians were getting ready to fire those bullets, they had called South Korea. And said, hey, do you mind if we go up to 35,000 feet to save fuel? And they're like, yeah, go ahead. And so after those bullets were fired, they climbed. And that caused the plane to slow down. Total dumb luck. But after the nine minutes of flying, the plane hits a spiral. It breaks up, smashes into the sea. Again, because this is the Cold War and the Soviet Union. And they have to cover some stuff up now because it's only, what, an hour or two before people start to realize the plane never showed up to South Korea. People are trying to track it. Soviet Union starts saying stuff. Oh, no, we don't know where it crashed. We didn't have anything to do with it. Oh, well, we might have, but we did fire these tracer rounds. We tried using the emergency lines, all that stuff. They searched the area first. South Korea and America wanted to go in there. Russia's like, I don't know, we got it. And (laughs) everyone's kind of rolling their eyes. And then you had civilian rescue teams come out after the Soviet forces left, and then eventually... The black boxes were recovered, but the rest of the world was not told those black boxes were recovered until 1993. So 10 years later, Soviet Union's like, oh, yeah, you know, that whole Cold War thing, you know, that is ending and we lost. By the way, here's the recorders of that. And they definitely showed more information as to what happened during that attack. But this is where it gets really, really weird. Soviet Union's really cagey on all their information. Every government is. But one of the things is that the people whose loved ones died on that plane crash, they wanted their remains. 269 people on this plane. No bodies were found. The only thing that they found was they found a torso on the bottom of the sea by where the rubble was. And they found 10 pieces. They said they used the term limbs and tissues. So it could have been like a liver, could have been a finger, but they found a torso and a couple of pieces. Eight days later and 70 miles away, 13 body parts washed up on this beach. And you go, Jason, the sea, the ocean's a big place. Maybe they just all floated in different directions. Well, that's kind of the way the tide works. You wouldn't actually say that. You're smarter than that. But the tide, first off, you would have had a bunch of people just there. When the Soviets got there first, the Soviet forces got there first that night, there's no reports of bodies being found. And when civilian rescue teams went there, one thing they noticed, this is where the conspiracy theory starts, to them, because they had worked sea time salvage before, to them it looked like someone had put the plane parts in the water. It didn't look like a normal distribution. So there is no bodies found other than that torso. Out of 269 people who died in that crash, you had one torso and about a baker's dozen of body parts. I don't know what a baker's dozen is. (laughs) I meant 24 body parts. Two baker dozens. So the people go, well, one of the theories that came out was maybe they got eaten by the wildlife. Maybe they got eaten by giant crabs that live in the area. No luggage was found. None. Not a single suitcase washed up on a beach. You go, Jason, maybe it was a spy plane. To his death, Major Ospovich said that was a spy plane. He died in 2015. He goes, that was a spy plane. I don't believe that there was a bunch of people on that plane. As, he, as a single tear rolls down his face, he can't admit it. You would have to believe that if you had blown up a plane full of 269 people. No bodies, no luggage. And then there's another crinkle in this mystery. The Soviet Union did find clothing from the wreckage. So no luggage, but there was clothing. And people go, so that must have been the clothing that they were wearing or the clothing that was in the plane, like in the cabin area. And they provided this stuff to the families. And there was a one woman, I was reading this Wikipedia article, and this quote from this woman, she goes, I could tell it was my children's shoes by the way the laces were tied. That sounds like a minor thing. And I didn't really pick up on it the first time I read it, but when you look at other things that are happening, all the clothing, jackets and coats were zipped up. When you pack your clothing, do you zip everything up? When you have shoes that you're not wearing, do you tie the laces? Giant crabs, bro. Sure, maybe they took the luggage maybe they gave the luggage to Ariel and it would be a new way for her to comb her hair. But the giant crabs ate everything. They ate the feet out of the shoes. Maybe. The guy, one of the main proponents of the giant crab theory is the guy who shot down the plane. Even though he thinks it was a spy plane, he goes, But if it wasn't a spy plane, giant crabs ate them. And apparently there are these giant crabs in the area. This is closer to Japan. And they don't eat bones. Even if they did devour all the flesh and took the luggage to Ariel, they don't eat, did they give the bones to Sebastian for his xylophone? There's no bones, there's no bodies. There's zipped up clothing and shoes that are laced so perfectly that a mother could recognize that's the way my child laces their shoes. It's almost as if they evaporated. Let's put a pin in that for right now. Recently, I did that episode about the Nashville bombing, and I was bemoaning the idea that we're making a big conspiracy out of this guy who had a sad ending to his life, and he blew this truck up, blew this RV up in front of the building. And I said in that, I go... As a child of the 80s, I grew up in the 80s. That was nothing. Like, stuff blew up all the time. This is where, like, this is complete. F- Several books were written about this. Several conspiracy theory books were written about this event. It was such a massive event. The song um, Proud to be an American by Lee Greenwood, it was inspired by this event. You're <laughs> like, Jason I don't- that's how you put your historical events i was like no no no. ariana grande has a great song about this national tragedy this kind of changed the way like made people really angry at the soviet union so people were writing books about conspiracy theories about this event 269 people blowing out of the sky and it was conspiracy theory fodder because you didn't know all the facts you never know all the facts that happened in pitch black over enemy territory, and they were being really cagey with details. So the conspiracy theory book started coming out. What happened to Flight 007? One of them was written by a guy named Michael Bruhn. It's a book called Incident at Sakhalin. That's the island it was shot over. Incident at Sakhalin: the true mission of KL Flight 007. He weaves this interesting story, and he actually got people to kind of like back him up on this. That night, there was actually a massive air battle. The Cold War was no longer cold. And you had U.S. forces fighting Soviet forces over that same area. And this plane just happened to wander into it. Like a butler walking into the scene of a murder. And as this dogfight's going on, this this plane, they didn't need warning shots then. They'd see all these explosions. This plane is just kind of flying through the area. And a bunch of planes are shooting each other up. Sounds ridiculous, right? Because you would have to have, now you have two fantastic events. You have the accidental shoot down of this plane, and then you have, because we know the plane goes down, but then you also have to involve all these other factors that were able to be covered up. One of the things that he was able to show in his book, there's a photo of some civilian rescue crews pulling out a piece of a weapon that had the letter N on it. Soviet Union doesn't have the letter N in their acrylic alphabet. So he goes, there must have been an other weapon in the area, i.e. an American weapon that went off. I can't dispute all that stuff. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true because we have that extra layer on it. But that's the level of conspiracy. Like people were digging through all the files to find stuff. But then you go, okay, so the plane got shot down accidentally by either the Americans, which would make it even a bigger scandal because we're the ones going after the Soviet Union or the Soviet Union did it. And we're having this dogfight. But then we have another conspiracy theory on top of that. And this is one that Michael Brune actually piggybacked on. He goes, actually, that'd be a great epilogue for my story. Two men got together. One was a brother-in-law, I think, of one of the people who died on the plane. The other one was a man who had escaped the Soviet Union. He'd escaped out of a gulag, and he was in the West now, talking about how crummy the Soviet Union was. When they meet up, they're digging through the information. This is the theory they came up with. The plane was shot. And it flew for another nine minutes. And again, that shocked everyone. It should have been shredded out of the air. No one could explain how that happened. Soviet command was thinking, are our missiles that lame? But anyways, the plane continues on for nine minutes. They believe that the plane landed. It was a successful landing. Everyone was fine. Maybe had a couple people blown up by the missile. But, you know, not 269 of them. They were immediately taken Prisoner by the Soviets. The children are sent to orphanages. The rest of them were herded off into the gulags and disappeared into Siberia. That one became pretty popular. because, And it wouldn't make sense that it would become popular. Because it would give you hope. It's not that they all died. If you had a relative on that plane, you'd think, well, maybe they're just in the gulag. Which is better than being dead, right? Maybe that kid's in an orphanage. He has a chance to a better life rather than just blowing up, getting eaten by crabs. It's an interesting story. It's a tragedy. We, and that's the end of it. We have no answers. We don't know where those bodies went. To this day, there's not a satisfactory answer. Even when you look at the story, some people say maybe they just all got sucked out of the plane as it was falling into the ocean, like the wind tunnel effect. But you would still find these bodies. All they ever found was shoes, jackets, a torso, a couple body parts, and that's it. Out of 269 people, it just doesn't make sense. Now, planes disappear. Don't get me wrong. We had that very famous plane, that Malaysia flight. I don't remember the exact number of it. It disappeared. But we don't even know where that went down. If you know where the plane went down, you should be able to find the bodies. But there's just so much stuff that doesn't make sense here. You have the people saying it looks like the wreckage was just put there. The absence of bodies. No clear-cut reason of why the bodies aren't there. After all these years, it's been what? 40 years since this happened, people still can't figure it out. It's a tragic story. It's a mystery. I wanted to profile it, and we'll wrap it up like this. If that happened today, and there just was an Indonesian flight that went missing just a couple of days ago, so we hope that we find survivors from that thing. If this story, though, if Korean Airlines 007 happened today, you know the first theory would be Aliens. Because that's exactly what this seems like. And I know it's really weird to say you have the missiles. You have the Soviet Union admitting they fired these missiles. You have all of this stuff. You have the black box. But where did the bodies go? This happened today. I think that would be a big conspiracy theory. Aliens abducted them right before they died. They're in a better place. They're in a better place now. Not heaven. That's a better place, but in the second. Like, a a, a rung down. They're flying around in space, having space adventures. You would see that conspiracy theory. But I want to wrap it up like this. A long time ago, we covered the story of the Bell Ray Surge. It was an energy weapon that the United States supposedly developed that was able to evaporate the populace of a town. This was different than a neutron bomb. This was a weapon that was actually, it really was supposed to be an energy source, but instead it absorbed all living matter in a town and everyone disappeared. It's 1983, it's the Soviet Union. There is a plane of unknown origin that just was able to take two missiles and still fly perfectly. Imagine there is a Soviet commander on the ground who is a part of the Experimental Weapons Division. He has been following this flight the entire time. Everyone has been aware of US spy flights over the Soviet Union. And he was waiting to see how this played out. When the two missiles struck the unknown aircraft and it continued to fly, that would be all the proof you would need that this is not a civilian craft, that this must be a heavily armored military craft, almost like a tank in the sky. That is when he is given the authority to use his weapon. A beam shoots through the darkness, invisible, because it's not a sci fi movie. It's just pure energy, it strikes the plane and in an instant, 269 people cease to exist. The plane plummets into the sea and crashes there. Soviet forces get there and they can look at this plane and they realize the weapon was a success, but it left some unusual damage to the whole of this aircraft. So they remove those pieces and then rearrange the rest of the rubble to kind of fill in the gaps. I don't know where the torso came from. Maybe maybe a Soviet diver (laughs) diver killed himself during the whole expedition. He couldn't live with himself. So that's where the corpse came from. But that is just another conspiracy theory to throw into the mix. Whenever there is a tragedy, people will always try to figure it out. And whether it is a sci-fi fantasy or a Cold War thriller... We will always search for the answers to learn the truth of what happened that night in the cold black sky. Radio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but day. I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.